Welcome to the Smart Tech Check Podcast, hosted by Mark Vina, your home for candid, insightful, and provocative conversations about the smart home, home automation, security, smartphones, PC and console gaming, and much more. Hello, everyone. My name is Mark Vina, host of the Smart Tech Check Podcast. Today is Thursday, October 6th, 2022. Joining me for today's podcast are Stuart Walpin, who scribes for Popular Mechanics, AARP, Techlicious, Investopedia, and other wonderful publications. John Quain, who writes for the New York Times, Smart Cities, and Tom's Guide. Rob Pedrero, who writes frequently for Tech Policy, on Tech Policy for Wirecutter, PC Mag, and USA Today. And I am so excited joining us for the first time today is Angela Mascaratolo, who is a smart home and wearables analyst at PC Mag. Folks, how are each of you today? Very good. Very well. Good. Thank you. Angela, I did pronounce your last name correctly? Yes, I'm impressed. Thank you. You did that well. No, because, you know, your name sounds like, you know, I was thinking of people's names sound like certain things. Your last name could be a wine. You know, it could be a it, bottle. It's long, but it's phonetic. So if you sound it out, you know, it's a bit intimidating, but it's straightforward. Well, versus Rob's name, which sounds like a diner somewhere in Hackensack. Uh, in <laughs> but, I like yeah, yours in diners. I'll take that as a compliment. Let's go down to Pecoreros. They have a good cheesesteak sandwich. Okay, yeah, so we got, um, we're got. we really excited to have you. Um, for those of you just listening in, uh, I met Angela at IFA a few weeks ago, and uh, she does a wonderful job of looking at the wearables. Smart home category, so she's the perfect person to have on this podcast. But let's tee up the first topic here. And that is, this week, we ta- uh, the Connected- Connectivity Standards Alliance. That sounds so formal. They finalized the Matter um, 1.0 specification. For those people who don't know, uh, Matter has been, I mean, I'm, I'm and I want to get, I certainly want to tee this up for Angela right off the bat. Matter, I think, you know, is going to be a wonderful thing once it gets into place, but it has kind of a waiting for Godot-like feeling to it. I mean, that's an old the- theatrical reference where there's a bunch of characters waiting for God to show up. And I feel like, you know, this should make the world a lot safer for, the, not safer for the smart home, but easier to participate in the smart home with interoperability, it doesn't matter what voice assistant you're using, but um, I'm glad that they finalized the the, the specification. Um, you know, part of the challenge with um, the uh, smart home, as as everybody knows, you really have to you know spend some brain power worrying about what voice assistant you're using when you select a device because it's not uncommon for a device not to work in other ecosystems. Uh, but nothing has shown up yet. I mean, the, the, they have lots and lots of participation. The CSA has done a great job of getting everybody on board. I want to say they have over 800 players or 850 participants, some big number. But there's nothing you can buy quite yet. And they, it's been delayed two or three times. So, you know, it's kind of like it's time to put your money where your mouth is, CSA. So, Angela, let me get your thoughts and, you know, what's your take on um, Matter? And are, are you do you think waiting for Godot is too uh, overstated? <laughs> So I've talked to a lot of people about this and there's a lot of excitement uh, within the smart home industry about it. Um, we'll have to see what happens 
right now it's a lot of buzzwords and um, it's a little bit confusing to uh, understand uh, what it's actually going to do um, and, and what it's actually going to improve. Um, from what I understand, it's not going to make uh, you able to control something that um, to, to use um, like Siri commands for um, Alexa or Alexa commands to control a, a, a like a, a Apple connected device. So I'm, I'm not quite sure what it's going to do right now. Okay. I have everything. I use all of them. I use, you know, Google home, I use Alexa and I use Siri, um, all of them. And I find it pretty easy. The voice control piece, what I think, um, this may, um, improve upon is the automation, um, aspect and the routines, um, which right now are very manual to set up. Um, it may uh, make that stuff a little bit easier to uh, set up. So one device working with another one, um, the, the vendors may be able to um, automate that for you instead of having to manually set it up. So we'll see. I don't know. I mean, I'm uh, like cautiously optimistic about it, but right now it's sort of a lot of buzzwords is my thoughts. What do you guys think? Yeah, Stuart. Well, I mean, it's all—it's like Angel said, it's really all in the implementation. We really don't have a clue as to how any of these companies are going to implement, how much they're going to protect their walled silos, and their walled gardens. I mean, right now there is some interoperability between devices, but the problem is that when you get a device that works on one system and you try to set it up, for instance, if, if a Google Assistant compatible or Alexa compatible, you end, sometimes have to end up going into the Alexa settings and point it to another device. And when you give the voice command, it's, oh, please, Alexa, please tell this other device to tell this other device to do something. And the strings that you have to create within the Amazon Alexa app or the Google app to set all of that up. And then remember, the syntax is at least even for us who know what we're doing is maddening, much less, you know, the, the poor the poor mom and pop at home trying to simply want to automate their, their, their light switches would drive them crazy, which I think is why they're doing this to address the fact that most normal people have a hard time setting these up. Whether or not this solves the problem, like as Angela said, it's all in the implementation and how easy they actually make these automation setups. Well, you know, at the simplest level, you know, I, I think what it's trying to overcome is you have to remember a wake word. You know, if you have, and I find that a problem, problem, problematic because you could have one device in your home that only works with HomeKit or only works with um, Google Assistant. And, you know, especially if, if you've got guests over, you've got different people and, you know, you know, the average person is not going to have the, um, the patience to remember different wake words. Now, Stuart, you bring up a good, a good um, issue. And that is, and that's the thing that I'm really waiting with bated breath in. What is the baseline level of functionality that matter compliance will provide? Because as you know, and I think you've said it very eloquently, Stuart, every device manufacturer still wants to differentiate their product. They want to say their smart light bulb is better than, than ABC's smart bulb. And if there are certain features that can only be activated by that company's uh, native app, well, uh, that's kind of kludgy, to be quite honest with you. So how robust is that baseline functionality going to be? John, what are your thoughts? John? Well, I agree. The, the integration is, is the big problem with this, right? And uh, 
and whether or not it makes it easy, as Stuart pointed out, if you have to go through all these machinations to get the blinds to work with the lights and your TV and the temperature control, you know, just to say good night, blank, uh, then it's it's not very helpful. I mean, aside from the fact that I suppose, you know, yes, it's compatibility, but I mean, as far as I'm concerned, this game is like already over because of Alexa. Whoops. I said the word anyway. Because <laughs> Alexa and Alexa and, and Google Don't Assistant, do that. I'm Don't watching do that. the flash. Everyone, everyone, in the room here. Um, so you know, everything works with that. That's the easiest thing for the consumer. You know, getting them to do the kind of uh, control system stuff. Stuart, back in the day, what was it? Twenty some odd years ago, we would do these like fancy automated control control smart home systems for the home that would do, you know, Extend. C4 would do like a TV and cost like 5,000 bucks. Thing. Um, and that was too complicated for most people. I'm not sure that there's a lot. It's interesting. I don't, I don't know that it's an, it's time. It may have come and gone already. Well, Rob, the closest out on this, I think Angela said something really interesting is that, you know, we're kind of past the, um, dawn of the smart home in that, oh, now it's kind of novel. I can turn a light on or I can open my garage door with a single command. The real value of the smart home is, you know, what I like to call smart 2.0 or smart home 3.0, whatever you want to call it, that it links multiple tasks together with multiple devices. And they're dependent on things that you, know, you don't necessarily have to activate. For example, if I'm coming home, my smart home realizes I'm pulling into the garage, so it automatically opens the garage door, it turns the lights on, it un unlocks the door, that kind of thing. There's different ways that you can you can enable that. But that's, you know, I'm not saying it's out of reach. The, the five of us are probably capable of and having the patience to automate that with the different routines that are necessary. But I don't think the average person has the technical capability to, it's not that it's highly technical, it's very monotonous. It's almost like programming in a way. So, Rob, Rob, do you agree with that, or do you think that? Well, first uh, of all, thank you all for reminding me that at some point, <laughs> the Amazon Echo in the kitchen stopped talking to the Hue connected light bulbs two rooms away, and I need to fix that. And I don't know how. Uh, mm -hmm. Second of all, what difference this makes is going to depend a lot on packaging and presentation. How big is the Matter logo on the side of the box or on the the, the product listing page on Amazon or Best Buy's site, and how quickly do people see that and associate that with oh, this is just another bit of graphic design, or this is the stamp that tells me I'm future-proofed. It doesn't lock me into any one ecosystem, any one company's smart home hub. To the extent one drives the other, it can simplify things a little bit and take away one less question, where I can tell people, well, look for this thing first of all. Then you can try to narrow your shopping a little bit. Well, I, I can tell you for a fact, being an old product guy, is that Product uh, product managers and product vice presidents do not like giving more real estate on a retail package to a, a certification label than they absolutely must have to do. You know, so I, I don't think you're going to see the Matter logo on half the box. And, and I agree with you. I mean, that's going to be the challenge because the CSA is a standard. It's a not-for-profit standards body. And they're certainly not going to spend money on demand generation. It's all going to have to come, come from the manufacturers. So. You know, getting the word out, it's going to depend on folks like us, you know, as we review these products and how we assess them. I know Stuart looks surprised because I just kind of gave him a uh, compliment. Sorry, this is your job now. 
So Google is going to be or or is letting uh, third parties um, utilize its home and away signals. So the devices know if you are in the house or not, and it will respond accordingly. Like um, if 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 you're out of the house or if it if it senses or thinks that you're out of the house, it will lower your thermostat to save money on energy. But this doesn't always work. So sometimes if you're in a different room, it may, um, this has happened to me, um, you know, with the Nest thermostat, it would be changing. It would be thinking I was away from home when I really wasn't away from home and changing my thermostat. And I'd be like, why is it hot in here? And I'd look at my phone and it'd be like, changed it to like 77 degrees. And I'm like, okay, well, this is annoying. And I just turned all of that off. But, you know, instead of just um, changing the thermostat, it did all these other things that you, you, when it was supposed to do when you were um, away from the house. Like, so the idea is, you know, you leave the house, and then the robot vac, you know, it'll connect that signal with your Roomba. So it knows to automatically start cleaning the house or it knows to um, start the air purifier when you leave or when the temperature drops to 75 outside, then your blinds go down or whatever it may be. Um, whether it works, we'll see, you know, whether it's one more I think you're right. So well, we're obviously going to review, the, uh, review, revisit this topic, and I hope Angela, you may be able to hope you can join us then after CES. When you know, to me, that's kind of the ninth inning. If we don't see really products that are working, not demos, but products that are working at CES, I think um, people are going to be very, very disappointed. Let us hit the next topic here, uh, and uh, this is a topic that I really want to get Rob and Angela to. Um, opine on but let's talk about the new apple watch series 8 i just bought a series 8 um and we're going to talk about pixel watch as well but you know i Angela, you know we haven't really chatted about this but you know my strategy when i upgrade my um watches because i've been an apple watch guy since day one i maybe it's a crazy um uh philosophy but i tend to not upgrade every generation i, I upgrade every other generation because i feel that apple doesn't make enough improvements in the prior generation to rationalize itself. So I, I figure if they jump a generation, you know, when you go from, let's say, one to three or three to five, or for me, it's two to four, four to six, six to eight, that's where you see real improvements. And I have had a Series 8 now for about, uh, since day one, actually, since they, uh, they began to ship. Well, I'm wondering right now, did I make the right move? You know, I, I don't see a big performance difference. Um, the battery life is about the same. Um, but anyway, let me, Angela, let's, let me get you to a pine because you've been playing with them for some time. Yeah, slight improvement on the battery life uh, with the Series 8. Um, and so we have the Series 8 and then the Ultra this year um, for the Apple Watch. And the models for Samsung we have are the uh, Galaxy Watch 5 and then the um, the Watch 5 Pro. And now we have the new Pixel Watch, which as we're filming this was just announced, um, or they, they just announced more details of it today. Um, and, and, and for the Apple Watch, um, it's the same design. Uh, the Series 8, exactly. 
same design as last year. Um, I have the series even right here. This is the small one, um, but the large one, the 45 uh, millimeter, looks exactly. They look exactly the same as last generation. So no design change there. Um, the big thing is the temperature sensor um, in this generation of wearables um, with Google, or sorry, with um, Samsung and Apple. Um, but um, it's really disappointing that Samsung uh, made such a big deal out of um, adding the temperature sensor to their wearables, and we don't have software support. So you can't actually see any kind of temperature data right now. And they tell me that they're um, working with third parties. But I don't understand why they don't just integrate this into Samsung Health. Are they not confident with the um, sensor? I don't know. Um, but yeah, so with the Apple Watch, the main thing that um, the, there's a new tile in the health app um, where it'll show your temperature deviations. Now, this is not going to um, tell you your actual body temperature, 98.6. It's not going to tell you that. It'll, it takes your um, baseline temperature over several days um, when you wear it to bed. And then after like five nights, it'll tell you whether you were running hotter or colder compared to your baseline. So it'll say you were up like 0.1 degree. You see that um, you, it, it could be an early indication that you're getting sick. This is also powering new um, estimated ovulation, uh, retrospective ovulation estimate. So they're using your body temperature to tell you when you last ovulated, if you have a menstrual cycle. Um, this could be helpful if you're trying to get pregnant. Um, for everyone else, it's, it's, it's um, irrelevant. <laughs> um. Now, it does have crash detection. The, crash well, detection. The iPhone has it as well. And I saw a story the other day, by the way. I don't know whether it was a Series 8 watch or a phone. But a it, the, these crash detection worked. Unfortunately, the people in the car died. So that's not good. But, um, but it, well, actually, let me, let me get uh, Rob to talk about the Pixel watch. Because I, I want to get his perspective. And then I want to, to get Stuart's opinion and John's opinion on, you know, I, when you buy an Apple Watch, you kind of still have to be married to the Apple ecosystem. Yeah, there is a what they do have now. You, there is a way of untethering the watch from an iPhone. But I want to get your perspective, uh, Stuart and John, on that whole untethering piece and whether that matters in terms of selecting an, an, a, a smartwatch in your estimation. But Rob, why don't you go ahead on Pixel? So yeah, I watched Google's presentation Thursday morning, and um, interesting pitch they've got here, where they're basically trying to they've rebooted the entire smartwatch effort because I remember when they first introduced Android Wear watches, they were okay, but nothing that special. And then they realized they, they picked the wrong company to make their chipset. Qualcomm just had no interest in doing a smartphone chipset at all. The watches got older and older. Nobody wore one. The only smartwatches I saw people wearing were Apple watches. Last year, they introduced Wear OS where they anointed Samsung as their chipset vendor. And Samsung in, in turn said, okay, we'll give you our, our chipset. We'll stop making our own OS. We'll, we'll adopt yours. And now with the Pixel Watch, we have the, the pure Google version of this. So it looks nice in pictures. It uh, People who were at the event said it was not, not too like chunky to wear, which is a problem with a lot of smartwatches these days. Uh, battery life, Google is saying up to 24 hours. From looking at the spec sheet, I'm a little disappointed to see you can't just put this thing on a standard Qi cordless charger and have it charged that way. It looks like it needs its own magnetic USB-C cable, which is yet another thing to pack in your gadget bag on a trip. Um, 
So I don't know. I'm intrigued. At the same time, so far, I get to buy. I haven't worn a watch of any kind in I don't know how long. Um, so we'll see. I've definitely thought, like every time I'm biking and I'm looking for directions, it would be handy to see the directions right on the screen. Not, on my the, one thing that is, the one thing that is kind of interesting um, is that the uh, Apple with uh, where are the um, – the uh, iOS, the the watch OS for uh, the new watches is it on nine version? Yes, watch nine. Yep. That does have a new feature, and I think it works with older generations of watches, where it will um, it will um, uh, go into like a power reserve capability and cut yes. back on power. And I found it actually pretty dramatic in that if you're flying quite a, if you're what it essentially does, if let's say you're flying to to Berlin for IFA, it will know that your phone is off. So there's no connectivity. It will know that there's no cellular connection if you have the cellular version and it can drop back power. It's, it doesn't turn off, but it really throttles back on the power. And I found that it really boosted the watch quite a bit because you know, there's very, in a lot of situations. I'm often in a situation where the phone is off or the or the I don't have connectivity. And, you know, why have the uh, watch being powered all the time? Uh, so that is a nice little feature of uh, the new um, uh, the uh, watch OS for Apple. But Stuart, let me t turn this over to you in terms of what is your, are you a smartwatch guy? I'm, I've never even noticed whether you- Well, since seen... Angela has come with show and tell, yeah, <laughs> I, I, have, I, I have the seven, I upgraded from the three. It took me that long to, to, to finally succumb to the Apple upgrade path. So this is my third. I had the one, the three, and now the seven. Um, the, the whole untethering issue to me is I won't say it's a non-issue necessarily, but the benefit of staying within an ecosystem, I think, are obvious, whether it's Android, uh, Wear OS, or whether it's Apple OS, because the most functionality you're going to get out of these devices is if, if it's within the ecosystem for which it was designed. Um, now, and a lot of this also depends on markets. In the U.S., the iPhone has more than 50% or around 50% market share. So half the people in the country own an Apple phone. So are going to be, I, they're not going to buy an Android watch. It make any sense. So I, at least in, in, in the U.S. market, I don't think the tethering or untethering is a big deal. And from the Apple point of view, the more, the more they tie it, to their OS, the more they're hoping that they turn Android customers into iPhone customers. Because I think the whole idea of creating the ecosystem is to not, I mean, they obviously made iTunes available to everybody, but I think the idea on the device side is to draw people into the Apple OS. So whether or not Apple encourages untethering or makes it available, I can't imagine that it's a full-throated effort. And I don't see why they should make it a full-throated effort. They want to attract people to their ecosystem, so you'll buy an iPhone, so you'll buy a you know a MacBook, that sort of right. you know, that sort of strategy. John, John, I, it's uh, this stuff has always struck me as um, yes, all for um, watches for people who don't wear watches. Um, you know that that kind of crowd <laughs> you're trying to demographic you're trying to anticipate. Um, you know, I still have this. It's a Sunto watch. It does all the stuff except take phone calls and all that. And it lasts for like two weeks on a charge and it's connected and it right. tracks me where I go. So the utility of these is it's, it's a different demographic. You know, if you're a watch person, you're going to wear a Garmin Phoenix, you know, you're going to wear 
one of these other watches that does a lot more in terms of fitness tracking and is a lot more rugged and is going to survive anything and also doesn't need to be charged every day which is right crazy like how are you supposed to do the sleep monitoring if you've got to charge your watch so when are you charging it during breakfast or something? I don't know. Anyway, yeah, it's I'll not charge it during breakfast. That's exactly correct, John. Try wearing this to bed. I mean, right. I had to wear at one point when I was testing the sleep tracking, this one and this one, the two biggest ones, uh, one on each wrist, plus the aura on my finger. I'm like, this is, this is hell. Can I say that? <laughs> like my job has a lot of perks, but that's not one of them. Oh, you have the aura too? <laughs> well, Edra, I, I would like to just close this out yeah. with your comments on the ultra because I'm a kind of guy that when I do buy a piece of tech I always buy the highest end of whatever it is even if it's more than what I need and to me the ultra unless you you know you're you're going to go into the Atlantic Ocean and search for the uh, the Titanic and go under the water underwater why would I want to buy an ultra I mean it, it is bigger it's bulkier as you as you've indicated but can you find a use case for yeah. non swimmers it's the battery life well, okay. the, the, well that is what go ahead, go ahead john i think that the diving well, that, that actually is an thing because that is an expensive piece of equipment if you're a diver and so being able to do that that these watches can do that that's really interesting that's a big sort of step forward and no reason why they can't so i was like wow that's going to eliminate a whole category of stuff that i had and and when I tested it, I absolutely love there's an exclusive new depth app on uh, the Apple Watch Ultra. And uh, so this has a, um, a depth sensor. So when you go underwater and I tested this and it was so much fun uh, when you go underwater at least three feet it automatically starts tracking how far you go down and your duration underwater. So when you get um, above, uh, the, uh, above the surface or even underwater, if you have goggles on, you can look at the watch and it'll tell you how far down you went and then how long you were underwater. And it works really well. It's so much fun. I could just see kids having a lot of fun with it. I don't know what, what kid is gonna be able to have access to it, but I mean, I even had fun with that, but you know, for um, anyone who is free diving, you know, I live in Florida, so there's a lot of people around here. You know, it's actually the first one that's um, approved for jet ski use and other um, high velocity water sports. I actually took it on a jet ski. We have the review. Um, and it's so yeah, anybody who lives by the water who does not mind the design, that's my big problem with it. It's just too big. It's just too bulky. It's not something I'm going to wear day to day. Um, and they, and, 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 and you mentioned, I'm sorry. Seven ninety nine. Seven nine. You can get two Series Eights for the same price. So yeah. One for well, Mark, Just as a side, they found the Titanic. I know. I know. I, I, I'm aware of that. Thank you, Clive Pastor. <laughs> I really appreciate it. <laughs> Save the Titanic. That was a great book. The movie wasn't that good. All right, let's let it let us go to the last topic, which will be a lot of fun here. This is the old Stuart Walpin in your wheelhouse type of topic. Um, the Supreme Court is going to hear a bunch of social media immunity cases on Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. Uh, which essentially gives immunity to social uh, social media companies, but it's going to be interesting, I shall we say. And uh, let me uh, let me just tee this up for uh, Stuart. Uh, go ahead, T. Go ahead. 
Well, first of all, there are two cases. There's one that's against Google. There's one against Twitter. They both involve uh, suing the companies for advancing information that led to terrorist attacks. The difference between the two of them are the Google case is about Section 230. The Twitter case is not. The Twitter case, even though they are both predicated on the social media services advancing the case for uh, using algorithms to advance terrorist uh, uh, communications on uh, YouTube for Google and on Twitter, um, they're predicated on different legal basis. Overall, the problem is that the they're, they've already gone through circuit court uh, rulings. And the circuit courts have essentially said, at least on the Google side, that they had to rule in favor of Google only because of past precedent and Section 230. And now that the Supreme Court is going to take it up, but the circuit court has said, if they had their druthers, they wouldn't want to rule on it at all, that this is a legislative issue. And I think at heart at all of this is no matter which way the courts rule, they're going to throw the baby out with the bathwater because the courts can only rule on the law that is there. They're being able to parse and separate the algorithm from the regular content is the issue at heart here. And what they're going to have to decide is whether or not algorithms are covered under in each of these cases as free speech and whether or not the social media site is responsible for them. So I think what needs to happen here is not the courts, but the legislature to better define Section 230 and to define whether algorithms are covered because the algorithms, the, the, the social media sites, remember, the, their, their main talking points here are we have no control over what users put on our sites we're, we're going to monitor it but it's it's up to them we're not responsible for what anybody posts and they're also claiming that they're not responsible for the algorithms even though they've created the algorithm so personally what i would like to see is ruling simply on the algorithm and whether or not the algorithms are covered under either section 230 or free speech laws or not and leave the rest of it all by itself. I think the algorithms is the key piece of this. Right. John? John? John, you're on mute. His lips are moving, but not, we're not. <laughs> we're, not, we're, not we're not hearing John. Let, let's flip over to Rob. Rob, your thoughts? So, yeah. So, first of all, I was hoping the Supreme Court would take a different CDA 230 case, which is the challenges to the what I think are clearly unconstitutional laws passed by Florida and Texas that essentially say social platforms cannot moderate content based on any political view, which and I've read the Texas law in full twice basically tells Facebook, Twitter, you have to keep the Nazis on. You can't kick off ISIS. You can't keep out the, uh, the QAnon cultists because they're all political views, as loathsome as they may be. Uh, and it's what, it's what happens when you write laws because you're angry that Twitter and Facebook kicked your dear leader off their platforms after January 6th. Well, tough. Um, so this is a narrower case. And the issue here is when we say algorithm, like the algorithm, we're also talking like, can you have a search function? Because that's got to do some ranking of its own. What is the most relevant result? You can get into an issue of, well, what if the content is suggested? Like, you know, you, you, 
look at, I'm going to bring up the Twitter app on my iPad. Let's see what's in the trending topics. It's always a mistake to look at that. I don't want to do that. <laughs> and so there, there, there's some editorial judgment being made. But on the other hand, editorial judgment, you know, that's a First Amendment issue. So I don't know. There, there are a lot of ugly yeah, things you know. that happen on social media that are not what, covered by CB230, but may not be fairly coverable by any law that will also be compliant with the First Amendment. Yeah, what what kind of scares me, and I think Stuart's right, you know, a lot of the attention in these two cases, or at least one of the cases, but pro- perhaps two, will be focused on the algorithm issue. And what really scares me is when lawyers and non-technical people get into understanding, well, well, what was the intent of this algorithm? I mean, because, you know, programmers can be very cagey. I mean, you, they can write algorithms in such a way that the average person is, well, there's nothing to really worry. I can understand the, 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 why the code is the code. And it's doing some things that, that if you're a technical person, you'd understand, well, it is skewing the results in a certain way. So, it, it, and that really is, I think we're going to be, the, it's really going to be the, the, um, the crux of the, the, these cases. And it's going to be fascinating. Um, Angela, do you have any thoughts on, on this? Yeah. And as you guys said, it it will be very interesting to see what happens. And this could have big implications for social media. Um, If social media loses, uh, they could be punished for um, promoting uh, some types of controversial uh, material. And right now, they're basically totally freed from responsibility uh, for the content posted by users under Section 230. Um, and, And Section 230 was enacted before the rise of social media. So, you know, perhaps it is worth reevaluating. Well, I think we are going to see some reevaluation of uh, Section 230. It's coming from both sides of the political aisle for different reasons, by the way, but it's coming. And now we've got, you know, it looks like the Twitter deal is going to happen. Um, It looks like uh, Mr. Musk, which is John Quinn's best friend. uh, He, uh, John, See, John can't talk at his microphone right now, so he, I, I can I can make jokes about that. But this is going to be a very interesting uh, next 90 days because if Musk does get control over Twitter and that transaction does happen, you're going to see a complete you know reevaluation at Twitter in terms of what they allow on on uh, their uh, site, you know, and uh, good and bad. And there will be some good. There'll also be some bad associated with that. So it's going to be really interesting to see how this kind of plays out here and as i mentioned before unfortunately john's microphone's not working but we'll we'll get him to, to provide his additional comments on the next uh podcast that we have so anyway folks angela rob john stewart thanks for taking the time to join me for today's podcast Thank you. Uh, for our viewing and listening audience thanks for making sure that the smart tech check podcast is part of your day or commute please make sure that you hit the like and subscribe buttons at the end of today's podcast and don't forget to follow me on twitter at mark Vina tech guy And until next time, have a great week.